Psalm 16 is where we're going to be. We've been in this series called Worship and Wisdom for the last uh, several weeks now. Um, this is my last Sunday to preach for a little while. I'm taking a little bit of a sabbatical. This one was planned. Uh, last fall was not. Um, thankful for God's grace and the faithful men he's brought here who can preach and teach the word. So over the course of these next four weeks, we actually have guys up here who can actually preach. Um, and so unlike me, uh, next week, Stanley John's going to be preaching for us and following him. Uh, Duncan will be up here, uh, who's now bald and bearded back there in the back of the room. Uh, we'll have Steve Welch preaching for us the week after that. And then Kevin Wheat rounding out uh, that, those four weeks that I'll be taking down. Doesn't mean I'm going on four weeks of vacation. Um, I just want to let you know that. I'm not like skipping town for four weeks. I'll still be here, still be doing everything else that I do. Uh, it'll give me a little bit of runway to do some sermon prep for the fall, also read outside of preparing sermons and just refresh my soul a little bit. And so I'm thankful for these men and the way that they can step up into that gap and teach for us uh, over these next four weeks. Psalm 16, though, is where we are this morning. So if you got it in front of you, uh, whether it be a paper copy of the Bible, electronic copy of the Bible, we'll read the text together and then we'll jump in. I've got four weeks of sermons to make up for this morning. So um, I'm just kidding. Psalm 16, beginning in verse one, says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption." You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, all of us in this room live on the backside of the fall. In Genesis chapter three, we see that our first parents uh, don't submit to God. They don't come to God, but they want to be independent of God. And so they take of the fruit and eat. And as a result of that, there is a, 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 a tidal wave in human history called the broken, that creates, creates brokenness in this world. And listen, I don't have to convince you that you live in a broken world because you breathe that in every day, don't you? Right? You breathe it every day in the news headlines. You breathe it in every day sometimes in your own personal headlines, in your own lives, as you experience being sinned against and at times sinning against others. We live in a broken world, but the greatest piece of evidence that this world is not the way it's supposed to be and everything is supposed to be different are cemeteries. Do you know that? That's the greatest piece of evidence. Every time that I leave our building, I drive toward Rockwall or leave our home and drive toward Rockwall, I pass Rest Haven Cemetery on my right. And as I pass by the funeral home and the gravestones and the plots out there, I'm reminded that this world is broken. Death is the ultimate example and evidence of the fact that this world is not the way that it's supposed to be. I, I, I have the opportunity and privilege to stand with families and weep with them at funerals. To, 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 to grieve with them, to mourn with them, to counsel with them whenever they've lost someone. And I've, I've stood there in funerals and delivered eulogies and sermons or memorial services. And as I see mothers and fathers who have lost sons and daughters weeping, I'm reminded this world is broken. 
as I see sons and daughters who have lost mothers and fathers in tears, I'm reminded that this world is broken. Sometimes you see acquaintances who are just teary-eyed and close friends who are unconsolable. I'm reminded that this world is broken. Death is the ultimate evidence that this world is not the way that it's supposed to be. But I want you to know this morning that the Bible teaches us that it is possible to walk into and through every reality of life in this broken world that we inhale, because we're all inhaling reality every day. We can walk into and through every, every, all the brokenness of this world with a, a confidence that is unshakable, with a foundation that is immovable, and with a buoyancy, right, that we can float that would make us unsinkable. And the way that we do that is by taking this psalm in Psalm 16, as we inhale reality, we begin to exhale the theology of this psalm. And that's what I want us to do together for a few moments this morning, is we wanna exhale the theology of Psalm 16 and learn how it is that we can walk through every, every, every valley that we face in this life with sure and certain confidence. You with me? A couple of you are. So, so that's, what we're, that's where we're heading this morning. Psalm 16. And this, what this psalm teaches us is this. It's a psalm of David. And this is what he teaches us. In order to have that kind of confidence, that kind of certainty, that kind of buoyancy that keeps you floating when the waves are crashing around you, that you must learn to run to God as your refuge. To run to him as your refuge. Look at what David says in verse 1. I'm pointing you back to the text here. David petitions God. He's asking God for something. He's coming before God saying, God, would you do something for me? And this is what he asks him. He says, God, would you preserve me? For in you I take refuge. Now, what does it mean to, that when we say God is a refuge? You see it all across the Bible. Essentially, it means this, that God is our safe room. I don't know if you've walked the halls of the local home improvement stores lately, um, but with all the tornadoes that have come through the area, they saw a prime opportunity to drop a bunch of these little tornado shelters in Home Depot, in Lowe's, these little steel gray cages that you can install in the central part of your home or even bury them outside in your backyard, right? So that when, and when weather threatens to come through here, you can find a place to go that you would be safe, that nothing could touch you, that nothing could harm you. Now, some folks have kind of taken it to the extreme. They don't have little steel boxes. They have little labyrinths under their land somewhere, right? Where they're stockpiling ammunition and whiskey, just waiting for the EMP to go off, right? And all of the electronics to be disabled. And they're just waiting for that day because they just want to shoot something, okay? <laughs> A little bit of prepper in some of you out there. I know, I know, right? You got canned goods everywhere across your home. But listen, what the Bible teaches us is that for God to be a refuge means that there is no safer person and no safer place on the face of this planet than in his presence. I don't care how deep your safe room might be. I don't care how strong and solidified it might be. I don't care how much preparations you have made. That God is our safe room. That's what it means for him to be a refuge. And listen to what David says. He says, David, David says, because I have made you my safe room, God. I've come to you as my refuge, God. I cry out to you to preserve me. But what is he asking God to preserve him from? David is asking God to preserve him from verse 10. That's what he's petitioning God for. David petitions God to preserve him from being abandoned to Sheol and allowing his body to decay and corrupt. Now, in the Old Testament, Sheol was the place of the dead. It wasn't heaven and it wasn't hell. It was where the dead went whenever they died. And as their body was laid in the ground, it began to decay, it began to corrupt, it began to corrode. Because our flesh, you know it just as well as I do, is corrosive. 
At the moment in which our heart stops beating and our brain stops firing and they put us in the ground, our body begins to naturally decay. And David says, God, would you preserve me from that? Would you keep me from that, God? God, would you not let me live or lie in the place of the dead? Don't let my body dissolve and decay. Don't abandon me, God. Don't forsake me, God. Don't dump me in the ground and ditch me, God. That's what he's petitioning God for that God would keep him from the corrosive corruption of decay that comes in death. And David is petitioning God for this on certain grounds. He says, for in you I take refuge. Now I want you to notice, David doesn't say, God, you are a refuge. He says, in you I take refuge. Notice how personal that is for David. Notice how personal it is and active it is. See, most of us think about taking refuge in God is just walking around all day thinking of how God is a refuge, that he is a safe room, right? That he is a place of shelter, that he is a place of protection, that he is all of these things, and we just think that God is these things. But David doesn't say that here in the text. David says, God, I don't just think that you are a shelter, that you are a refuge, that you are a safe room, but I'm coming to you as my shelter, as my refuge in you, I have taken refuge. In fact, those personal, first person personal pronouns show up all across these 11 verses. Consider this, in Psalm 16, the word I occurs eight times, the word me occurs five times, the word my occurs 11 times. What David is saying is this, is he's not just propositionally laying down truths about who God is, but he's relationally coming to God as that in his life. And there is an eternal difference between those two things. There are folks who, are f- who fill churches all across our community and our nation who would be able to check off the list and say, God is, God is, God is, but they are not coming to God as. It's not personal for them. It's just propositional. It's just information. It's not relationship. And David says, I'm coming to God as my safe room. Now, there's a massive difference between those two things. Let me break it down for you this way. How many of you can think back to when you were in school, right? Some of you are like, man, that's been a, I gotta clear out some cobwebs and dust off some shelves back there. And some of you are like, that was just like two months ago and I'm going back in the fall, right? So when you were in school, though, you, you, you took exams, right? And your teacher passed out the exam whenever you studied a unit of material, and they pass out an exam. And exams usually were structured, and they have various types of responses on the exams, right? You might have a section of multiple choice. You might have a section of fill in the blank. You might have a section of matching. You might have a section of true-false. And you might have a section for essays, right? Listen, there are people all across churches in our community and our nation who are able to take the true false portion of the test and check off every box, circle everything true. God is a shelter, true. God is a place of refuge, true. God is a place of protection and preservation, true. They, they, they ace the true false portion of the test saying God is, God is, God is. But when it comes to the essay and taking all these things that they have learned and personally, relationally applying them in their lives, man, the essay is a little bit short or non-existent. That's what David is saying here. Whenever I say run to God as your refuge, it's a personal relational response to who he is. Yes, he is all these things, but are you coming to him as those things in your life? 
So here's the question that we want to deal with in the rest of our time this morning is this. How do you do that? And David doesn't leave us hanging in this text. The first thing I want, to, I want you to see about how we come to God as our place of refuge to preserve us from the most broken realities of life, including death, is this, is that you have to rely on him. You have to rely on him. I want you to look at what he says in verse eight. We read this a moment ago. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Listen, for God to be at David's right hand meant that God was the one that David relied on for help. In the Bible, you see this language of the right hand show up in a couple of different uh, kind of categories. The f- one of them is this, is that to be at God's right hand was a position or place of honor and, 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 and prestige. So for instance, whenever James and John and their mother come to Jesus in the gospels and they say, listen, Jesus, whenever you come in the fullness of your kingdom, would you grant that one of my sons could sit at your left and the other one could sit at your right? One at your left hand, one at your right hand. What she was asking for was for positions of honor and privilege and prestige for her sons. Or in the book of Hebrews, whenever it speaks of Jesus finishing his work at the cross and the high priest who has offered the sacrifice and was the sacrifice, that he is now seated at the right hand of God in a place of honor for who he is and what he has done. And by the way, he's not standing at the right hand of God as some songs would teach us that he is, but he's sitting there. Why? Because his work of redemption has been completed. He's not a priest standing in the temple every day offering sacrifices because he's offered once for all. And he's in a position of honor at God's right hand. So to be at God's right hand is a place of honor, but to have God at our right hand means that he is our help. That he shows up in our lives and that we rely on him. Now, How do we do that? There's two ways David talks to us about in the text, and the first one is this. The first way that we rely on God is by setting our petitions before him. We bring our, that's what David does in verse one, right? David acknowledges his neediness. God, I can't do this without you. What I need, God, I cannot provide for myself. And so he comes before God with his petitions, asking God, making requests to God. He, he comes before God and acknowledges his neediness. That's exactly what we're taught to do elsewhere in the Bible as well. In Philippians chapter four, are any of you anxious this morning? Are any of you have weighed down by worry this morning? Consider what Paul says in Philippians chapter four. In verse six and seven, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, some of your translations say petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says the same thing, that Paul teaches us to do the same thing that David does. That you come before God with petitions and you pray and you get on your knees before God. You say, God, I cannot do this on my own. God, I cannot find comfort, confidence, unshakableness by myself. God, I need you. I desperately need you. And notice what Paul says, that whenever you're anxious or you're weighed down with worry, that you bring all that before God and you ask God, you request God to show up and you rely on him. You don't take things into your own hands, but you get on your knees before God, not stand to your feet and go out and try and fix stuff, but you just get on your knees before God and say, God, would you show up? I'm relying on you. And notice what he says in the text, that when you do that, that God shows up with peace in your life when you come to him as your refuge by relying on him. But the second thing that 
Well, before we move on, I just wonder, I know in my life, how often we have forfeited the peace of God because we have taken things into our own hands and stood on our feet and tried to fix it as opposed to acknowledging our neediness and getting on our knees and saying, God, I can't do this. Do you rely on him? But the second thing that he teaches us about relying on him is not only do we set our petitions before God, but we set God before us. Look at what he says in the text again in verse eight. I have set the Lord always before me. Always before me. Now, consider something with me this morning. In your English translations, that word Lord is in all caps, isn't it? It should be, okay? If it's not in your translation, it should be. Because underneath that word is the Hebrew word Yahweh, the personal covenant name of God. Anytime you see the all caps Lord in the Bible, that's the word underneath it, Yahweh, the God who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush as I am who I am. The covenant God who with him is steadfast love and, a, and, and mercy and forgiveness. This covenant God who has pledged to his people to bless them and do them good even if it would bring him harm. Think about the covenant that he makes with Abraham. In Genesis, whenever he says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm, I'm gonna bless you. Your descendants are gonna be as numerous as the stars. And God says, how? And Abraham's like, I don't know how that's gonna happen, God. I can't, I, how, do I, how do I wrap my mind around that promise? And this is what God does. This is what God does. He takes Abraham, he calls him, he goes, Abraham goes out and grabs a bunch of animals and some birds and he lines them up in a path and he cuts them all in half and leaves them sitting there. One half on one side, one half on the other. And then God causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And Abraham is in a slumber and this was a covenant making ceremony in the ancient world where two kings would pass through. As they pass through, two rulers would pass through and they would say, be it done unto me. May I be divided and ripped into shreds if I go back on my word. Now Abraham doesn't go through and here's why. Because God was saying, be it done unto me, Abraham, if I fail to bless you in the way that I've promised and be this done unto me, Abraham, if you fail to uphold your end as well. God unilaterally makes a covenant with Abraham. He pledges himself to his own harm to bless him. And David says, this God is the one that I'm setting before me. Always, continually, all the time. I fix my mind on him. I fix my eyes on him. I fix my gaze on him. Set him before me. And whenever you walk through the deepest valleys in life, deepest valleys of life, through miscarriages, through loss, when you walk through the breakups and, and maybe even a divorce, when you walk through the deepest valleys of life, you set this covenant God before you who has promised to his own harm to bless you and you keep your mind fixed on him. So you're bringing your petitions before him saying, God, I need you, I'm relying on you, God, and I'm setting my eyes on you and keeping you before me always. I set you before me always. Listen. Whenever that day comes for you, whenever it comes for me, and we feel our life wasting away, whether it happens in a traumatic accident and in the twinkling of an eye, whether it happens as disease or age just slowly break our bodies down, what you and I need is to set this God before us. And consider something with me. If you can walk through the deepest valley of life, the valley of the shadow of death, with confidence and boldness and unshakableness, then what about all the lesser valleys that you walk through? 
We rely on him, church. Will you set your petitions before him and set him before you always? Second thing that he teaches us about taking refuge in God, coming to God as our refuge is this, is that not only do we rely on him, but we submit to him. We submit to him. Look in verse two. If you got it still open there in front of you, in verse two, listen to what David says here. David says in verse two, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Like all caps, I say to the Lord, the covenant God, the name of God, the personal God, the God who has pledged and promised to bless even to his own harm. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now the second word, the second Lord in that verse isn't all caps, but it's a capital L and lowercase O-R-D because there's a different word underneath that word in Hebrew and it's the word Adonai. Adonai was the master of a household or the ruler or a king. And this is what David is saying. This is, this, is, this is beautiful. He's saying, Yahweh, this covenant God, he is my Adonai. This covenant God, he is my master. This covenant God, he is my Lord. He is my ruler. He is my king. I yield to him. I submit to him. I order my life around him. And David says, I do this in two ways. The first one is this. Look at what he says in verse five. In verse five, David says that we submit to God, we submit to God as our Adonai, as our master. We acknowledge, by by acknowledging that God guides you according to his will. That he guides you according to his will. Look at what he says in verse five. He says, you hold my lot. Now the lot in the ancient world was a decision-making tool, right? It's kind of like dice. They'd roll the dice or they'd cast lots and make decisions about where they were gonna, you know, what, what they were gonna do next and where they were gonna move and, and what the nation was going to do in response to perhaps national calamities or distress or what individuals were gonna do in response to those things as well. God would guide them through the casting of lots. We don't need that anymore because we have the Holy Spirit who abides within us and guides us. But listen, David says, when you hold my lot in your hand, what he's saying is the same thing the author of Proverbs 16.33 says when he said the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Every decision is from the Lord. David's saying, God, my life is in your hands. You guide me according to your will. Try and break it down for you this way. Listen, what David is saying is that God, this covenant God, is the director, producer, writer, and composer of the score of my life. That's what he's saying, to use some movie terms for you, right? The director, right, the writer who writes the script, the director who directs the action on stage or on scene, the producer who on the back end makes sure the story's being told in the way the writer envisions it being told, and the composer who's writing the score for the play or the movie, right? God is all of these things and I am but an actor. God is, he's written the script, he's directing me. He's producing this to his ends for his glory and his purposes and he's even written the soundtrack to my life. That's what David is saying. You hold my life in your hands and here's what this means, church. It means that there are no plot twists in your life. Some of us think there are. Right? Because from our perspective, we think there's all these plot twists in our life as things turn one way and turn the other. But the Bible teaches us that God holds us in his hands. Our lot is in his hands. Our life is in his hands. Right? So there's no plot twist, nor are there any surprise endings. (laughs) Nor are there any surprise endings. 
So do you believe that? Whenever, you're, whenever you face relational strife, whenever you face medical diagnoses, whenever you face an uncertain future, whenever you face loss, deep loss, can you look up? And what we see when we look up oftentimes is the backside of a tapestry. You know what a tapestry is? A piece of art that's kind of woven together with all these threads. And whenever we're looking up, trying to figure out and make sense of life, thinking there's all these plot twists and all these surprise endings for us, we look up and all we see is these tangled threads underneath. But you know what God sees on the top? He sees this beautiful picture of where he's leading you, of where he's guiding you. That if you're in, in Christ will ultimately lead to you enjoying the pleasures of God forevermore. That's what he sees. We see all this tangled mess. Maybe you don't, I do in my own life. But I see all this tangled mess, but God sees a beautiful picture because he's guiding you according to his will to accomplish his purposes. But second of all, consider this, the way we submit to God is not only by acknowledging that, but it's also by allowing him to govern us according to his word. Allowing him to be our shot caller, right? I didn't say it as cool as the, somebody with a hip hop background, you know what I'm saying? But God is our shot caller, or caller, right? That's probably how I should have said it. I'm just gonna keep moving. Probably a little too white for that. So what, this is who God is. He governs me according to his word. Look at what David says. Again, I'm not making this stuff up. It's in the text. In verse seven, David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. You see, a life that is submitted to God's lordship and his sovereignty in your life is one that is filled with and worships him for his word. You bless him for his counsel, his commandments, his instructions, his precepts. Turn to Psalm 119 some other time and just read through Psalm 119 and all the ways that God instructs, all the ways that God teaches, all the ways that God has given commands and wisdom for us. And David says that that counsel causes me to rise up and bless God, to bless him for it. Now, why would the counsel and commands of God cause David to rise up and bless him? Here's, I, I thought about this for a long time this week, and I, I, this is one reason. There might be others, but this is one. Because whenever you begin to, as we've talked before about setting your feet in the path of wisdom and yielding to God and submitting to his will and allowing him to govern your life according to his word so that whenever he says something that you put your feet on that path and you obey and you take one step after another that as you receive God's word, he's spoken to you, you receive it, you respond to it, you walk in it, all of a sudden you begin to see, find joy rising in your heart because it's what you were made for. It's what you were made for. So you begin to experience joy and out of that joy you say, God, I bless you for your counsel. I bless you for your word and it governs my life. It's part of what it is to submit to God. That he guides us according to his will and that he governs us according to his word. And notice what David says. That whenever we submit to him, when we submit to him, and, and we begin to fill our life with his counsel, we begin to fill our life with his word, our life becomes unsinkable. Because he says, what does he say in verse nine? In verse nine, listen to what he says. Turn back there. He says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. 
There is refuge whenever you begin to allow God to govern your life by his word. That's, that's the means by which he's given you to take refuge in him. And you run to him. And your life becomes unsinkable. Listen, I've got this old ranger boat, bass boat, that was handed down to me by, by my grandfather, then my uncle, and my dad. Now it's mine. Um, it runs some of the time and still floats all the time. And one of rangers kind of hallmarks of their boat construction is they claim that they're unsinkable. And I've tested that theory, I just want you to know. The very first time I launched it, I launched it without the plug in. And so as it sat at the dock and I went and pulled my truck and trailer back up into the parking lot, um, I came back and I saw all this water bubbling up through the floorboards that it had flooded the village area of the boat. And I was, it, was, it was one of my finer moments in life because uh, I had to cut in front of somebody else who's trying to launch, tell them embarrassingly, hey, I had put that thing in without the plug in, and then back my trailer down, pull it out, let the water drain out, put the plug back in, and put it back into the water. So, man, it was, it was, it was a good day for me. But, they, the, but the boat didn't sink, even though it was taking on tons and tons and tons of water, and here's why. Because one of the things they do whenever they construct those boats is in every cavity, every crevice, every space, and every void, they blow this incredibly buoyant foam into those spaces. So outside of the live wells and storage compartments, they blow this foam into there. And it causes the boat to be able to float even when it's taking on massive amounts of water. And listen, God's word will function the same way in your life. It will. If you put your feet on the path of wisdom and follow him and take step and step and step after him and obeying him and not just giving head, not saying yes, God's word is true, true, but the essay of your life, what are you writing? Are you putting your feet in his path of wisdom? Are you blowing God's word into every crevice, every void, every crease, every crack of your life so that whenever you cut, whenever you get cut, you bleed Bible? If you bleed Bible when you get cut, David says, you'll be unsinkable, even in the deepest, darkest valleys of life. So you submit to him. But then thirdly, thirdly, listen to what David says. Not only to take refuge in God, God is your refuge, you rely on him, you submit to him. But then finally, he says, not only do you do those two things, but you also seek good from him. In verse two, we read these words, I have no good apart from you. Again, I want you to look at that personal language. I, God, I have no good apart from you. Not consensus says, God, that there is no good apart from you. Or generally speaking, God, I've heard others say that there is no good apart from you. David's making a declaration, God, I, God, have no good in this life apart from you. It's personal for him. It's not propositional, it's not information, it's relationship with God. And notice, I'm only gonna give you one way this works because we're running out of time. And, and it's, and there's, but there's more in here I wish I could get to. Maybe I'll write them up one day. But listen, listen, here's, here's the one I wanna drill down on for you. It's one of the ways that you seek good from God and God alone is by abandoning your idols. Look at what he says in verse four. He describes those who run after other gods. Those who pour out drink offerings to other gods, those who take other gods' names on their lips. See, in Israel, there were people who kind of had one foot in with Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, who had pledged to bless and promised to bless them even to his own harm. They had one foot in with him, but their other foot was over here with the gods of the nations, right? So whenever the droughts came, they would go and worship the Baals, right, to receive 
water and crops. Whenever difficulties rose, they would go to the other gods of the other nations. They had one foot in with Yahweh and one foot in with the Baals. So they had these idols that they would flee to and run to, seeking blessing from, looking for good. And David says, I will not go before them in worship. I will not pour out drink offerings to them. I will abandon the pagan practices and say that in God and God alone is my good. In God and God alone is my blessing. I will look for it nowhere else. I won't run to all the little G gods that promise blessing, that promise good. And notice what David says, those who have one foot in with Yahweh and one foot with the Baals or the gods of the other nations, he says they multiply sorrows to themselves. They, it's, it's, they multiply sorrows to themselves. Matthew Henry, a Bible commentator and teacher several centuries ago said it this way. He said, they that multiply gods multiply griefs to themselves. For whoever thinks one God too little will find two too many and yet hundreds not enough. Now, I don't know what your little G God is that you run to and seek good from. I could tell you one of mine that has been a repeat offender in my life and it's the idol of approval, human approval. Wanting attaboys, wanting, wanting people to pat you on the back, wanting people to approve of you. And listen, I've sought it all my life. As a child, I sought it. In teen, I sought it through athletics. Like if I could perform on the field, playing baseball or on the cross country course or on the track, and my coaches were to pat me on the back and approve of me. People would cheer me on. It was human approval that I was thirsting for and looking, after, looking for. I thought it was gonna bring me good. I sought it as I moved into college and seminary through academics. Like if I could excel in the classroom and my professors would encourage me, say, man, you've got a bright future ahead of you. You're, 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 you're gifted and talented. I was seeking human approval in academics. And listen, I just want to be honest and own this this morning that as I've moved into pastoral roles, I have also sought it through ministry achievement and success. And just, just to open the window of my soul a little bit wider this morning, last fall, whenever things began to struggle in the church, this was a part of why it was so difficult for me. Because I had been looking to this God of approval through ministry achievement. It just morphed over time, right? It just took different means and faces on over time. But as it, as it, as it, as it took that face on and things began to wither here, I began to wrestle deeply with it. Because what was happening is I was multiplying griefs to myself and I was finding that two gods are too many. You ever found that in your life? Two gods are too many. And even hundreds will never satisfy you. Only one. And so I began to try and cut away at that little G God of approval in my life, piece by piece. And one of the ways that I'm trying to do that is through the word of God, through the promises of God. Like a couple of months ago, I'm just gonna give you an illustration of how this works. A couple of months ago, this God brought this text to mind in Hebrews chapter 11 and the hall of faith as, as the author of Hebrews recites and recounts all these great men and women who have trusted in God and one of them is Abraham. And in Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11 beginning in verse 80 says, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, 
heirs with him of the same promise. And then in verse 10, he says, here's why he lived in tents. Here's why he sojourned. Here's why he never set roots. Here's why he never looked to this world to bring him all that he was longing for. In verse 10, it says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder and designer is God. So Abraham sojourns in these tents, recognizing that nothing in this world is permanent, but everything in this world is temporary. And he was looking for a city, a, a different city, that God would design, that God was the architect of, that he would build and bring out of the ground, and it would be unshakable, immovable, and it would never sink. That's what Abraham was looking for. And so one of the, as God brought that text to my mind, and I began to think about the dynamics of Abraham and how nothing here is permanent. I began to think about ministry achievement. I began to think about success. I began to think about approval in men's eyes. And it began to cut away because here's what I began to realize. That Redeemer, whether this church is here 200 years from now if the Lord tarries by his grace to give full opportunity for men and women to repent and trust Jesus, if it's here 200 years from now doing ministry in this community and has planted multiple other churches, if that happens 200 years from now, all praise be to God. But if it doesn't, whatever is built here, whether we're meeting in a daycare facility, on a retreat center, or one day have our own building, whatever is built here is only temporary because a day is coming in which that city's gonna arrive and God will be in our midst. He'll be here with us. And God said, that's the city you're waiting for. That's the one you're waiting for. Not this one. As much as a pastor in this church, I want this city to reflect that city, it will never be that city. And that's the one I'm waiting for. And so I've been taking that text and trying to cut away at that root of approval, just chopping, chopping, chopping. Now yours may not be approval, yours may be comfort. Right, the greatest quest of your life where you think you're gonna find good from is just by being comfortable. Right? Not having any demands on you and oftentimes what that ends up doing is it sucks you into a world of fantasy and you just you forget about reality and you embrace fa fantasy. Because in fantasy, nobody's making demands on you and in fantasy, nobody expects anything from you. In fantasy, no one is confronting you or challenging you. And so you might withdraw to your Xbox One or your PlayStation 4 or some other fantasy world in which you're living where there are no demands, no expectations and no consequences because that's comfortable. Those of you who wrestle with addictions to pornography, that's fantasy. Do you realize that? That is fantasy. There's no expectations, no contradictions, no, no one is expecting anything from you as you just veg out on a screen. And underneath that is this little G God of comfort because I don't want real relationships because they expect something of me. I have to give. Maybe that's yours. And maybe you've withdrawn from marriages on account of that. Maybe you've withdrawn from friendships on account of that because it just got too hard. You didn't want to do the work anymore. You just wanted to be comfortable. But you know what happens in those moments? You're multiplying sorrows to yourself. And in those moments, you begin to find things get hard and dry. You know why? Because you're finding that two gods is too many. Maybe for you, it's control. Maybe you want to control every aspect of your life and not see that God's guiding you by his good hand and by his will. But you wanna control everything. And so what you end up doing, some of you are parents, you end up trying to control your kids, right? 
I'm not saying you, can't, you shouldn't discipline your kids, you shouldn't instruct your kids, you shouldn't correct your kids, but you end up trying to control them. Say, don't sit there, sit here. Don't drink from that water fountain. Get your water bottle, right? Do this, do that. You're just constantly trying to manipulate them and control them and confine them. And you know what will happen over the course of time is while you can do that when they're three, when they're 13, that doesn't work. And you will multiply sorrows and griefs to yourself as you try and control your kids. And it happens in marriages as well. Listen, some of you men in the room perhaps have oppressed your wife by trying to control her and some of you women have been emasculating your husband by trying to control him because you just want to have the reins in your hands. Maybe that's your little G-God and you begin to cut away at that root and say, God, I'm not seeking good from control. I'm not seeking good from comfort. I'm not seeking good from approval. I'm seeking good from you and you alone. See, to take, come to God as your refuge and take refuge in him, you gotta rely on him. You gotta submit to him. And you gotta seek good from him. Now, you've heard me say over and over again, this is personal. It's personal, Right? It's not propositional, not information, but this is what I do. I set my petitions before him and I set him before me, intentional, active. I come to him as my refuge. I'm not looking for it in anyone or anything else other than him. So it's personal, but I want you to know there's a dilemma here. As we close, there's a dilemma. And here's the dilemma. Is it, for David, this was personal. Absolutely personal. And yet... For David, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't. As he sins with Bathsheba, as he struggles through that adulterous relationship and the consequences of it, it wasn't perfect. And so you know where David lies today? In a tomb. See, we can come to God personally, but if we do not do the, if we, if, if we fail to do these things perfectly, if we fail to do these things perfectly, listen, to rely on him, to submit to him, and to seek good from him. If we fail to do him perfectly, then listen, we, don't, we can't claim the promise. We can't claim the promise of verse 10, for he will not allow our bodies to see corruption. David experienced it, and so do each of us, because we don't do this perfectly, do you? Do you always rely on him? Do you all, or do you take things into your own hands? Do you always submit to him, or do you set out on your own course? Do you always seek good from him, or you've got all these other little gods that you're trying to find blessing from? Now, I want you to know something. None, none of us in this room ever does this perfectly, but there's one who did. There's one who did. And that's the good news this morning. That's the good news. See, Jesus is the only one who ever has tasted and experienced Psalm 1610, that God did not abandon him to corruption, did not abandon him to the grave, but raised him up. And so you gotta do it personally, Yes, but because of Jesus, you don't have to do it perfectly. But let me tell you what you gotta do. You gotta do it particularly. It's not enough to run to an abstract God. Here's, here's the last point this morning. You gotta run to the Son. You gotta find refuge in Him. Because He is the only one who has done this Perfectly. See, there was one man who came to the Father as his refuge. He relied on his Father by petitioning him in prayer. You ever notice in the Gospels, he's always drawing aside in prayer, saying, God, Father, I cannot do this on my own. I need your help. He's spending time in solitude and silence and in prayer before God. 
He relied on him. Jesus submitted to, the, submitted to the Father by yielding to his plan at every turn, even in the garden, right? In Gethsemane, where he's sweating drops of blood, crying out to God, if there's any other way to redeem mankind, God, make it so, but nevertheless, not what? What I want, God, but your will. Submitted to him. Saw God was guiding his life. God governed his life, the Father governed his life by his word. And Jesus, listen, he sought good from the Father alone by resisting every temptation to find blessing elsewhere as he's led into the wilderness and tested for 40 days. And Satan is there saying, listen, you can bypass this whole thing. Just bow down right here, right? Show off your power, show off your glory. Make a spectacle of yourself. And at every instance as Jesus is tempted, he resists that temptation, to find blessing anywhere other than his father. See, there's one who did it perfectly. And as a result, Jesus was the first one to taste of Psalm 16:10 that God didn't abandon him to the grave. This, this is exactly what Peter says when he preaches in Acts chapter two. I wanna read this text to you. In Acts chapter two, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. You yourselves know This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, then he quotes Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. And then Peter breaks from the quote and he says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, somebody would break this cycle of death for the kings, that God would set someone on his throne forevermore. He foresaw, verse 31, and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This is not drunkenness and this is not people who need to be locked away in padded cells in terror. They're not crazy and they're not intoxicated. The Holy Spirit is being poured out because Jesus was loosed from the pangs of death and risen to be with the Father and he poured out the Holy Spirit to minister to his people and to be with them. That's good news, isn't it? That even though you and I do not do this perfectly, there was one who did and God raised him up from the grave, loosed the pangs of death and his body did not see corruption. And if you would trust in him this morning, then his experience will be yours. And the Bible calls that imputation. You know what that means? It means that you didn't raise a finger to do it. He did it all on his own. And by faith, he would give it to you because of your connection to him, your faith in him, your trust in him. At this week at camp, uh, we had a little putt-putt match, a little contest right, between some of the guys that were there. And it was me and Chase against Brian and Marcos and Dustin and Nathan. Right? And so we put a little bit of something on the line. It was cleanup duty at dinner time. 
right? Because Glorietta serves meals family style. So they bring all the food out to the table and you just kind of fix it and pass it around the table. And then you clean up after yourselves when you're done and you bring all the dishes back to the uh, kitchen so they can wash them and prepare them for the next meal. And so that's what we put on the line was clean up duty at dinner, right? And so we played match play, like per hole, not per stroke. And so uh, Chase and I were up by a couple of holes as we kind of approached the final um, stretch there. And Chase had hit a putt and he was standing over it and one of the boys was kind of doing a little bit of friendly gabbing, right, in his ear, um, a little bit of trash talk. And so Chase stands over the putt and he lines it up and he looks at him and he steps back, hits it and sinks it. Right, securing the victory in the, in the, 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 the world championship of putt-putt, in our minds anyway, right? And so I put Chase up on my shoulders and we took off running through the camp, just screaming and rejoicing. And then when we got back to, that, that part's not really real. When we got back to the dining hall, there were some other folks who were seated at our table and listen, listen, they didn't have to lift a finger to clean dishes that night, and why? Why? They didn't do a single thing to win the match play championship of Glorietta. But it was imputed to them because they were connected to us at that table. And that's what faith in Jesus accomplishes for you. Even though you didn't lift a finger that if you trust him and you repent and change your mind about who's in control of your life, who you're relying on to run your life, who you're submitting to in your life and who you're seeking good from, and you run to the son, all that he's accomplished is yours. And your body one day will be raised from the grave and so you can walk into the valley of the shadow of death with confidence, unshakable. And you can walk into every other lesser valley of life the same way. Let me pray for us. Father, today, we come to you expressing our need for you, God, our gratefulness for your grace at the cross. And Father, I pray, God, that you would help us this morning by your grace for those who've never trusted in Jesus. God, I pray that you would help them to see that what he has accomplished can be given to them, even though they never raised a finger to accomplish it themselves. Just like David and Goliath that it's imputed to them, given to them because of their faith and trust in you. Father, help us to abandon our idols, to turn away from them and seek good only from you. Help us to set our petitions before you and you before us always to rely on you. God, and help us. Help us to submit to you and see that you're guiding our lives. God, that there are no plot twists or surprise endings and God, that there is there is a means that you have ordained for us to take refuge in you and that's coming to you underneath your word and allowing it to govern our lives. And I bless you for your counsel. I pray, God, that we would take refuge in you. God, that you would come to you as our refuge. And I pray this in Jesus' name.